0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing with our reading of Women, Race and Class by Angela White-Davis. We're finishing off the chapter we started last week on communist women. We have basically two more bios to kind of get through this week, so let's get into them. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn When Elizabeth Gurley Flynn died in 1964 at the age of 74, she had been active in socialist and communist causes for almost 60 years. Raised by parents who were members of the Socialist Party, she discovered, at an early age, her own affinity with the socialists' challenge to the capitalist class. The young Elizabeth was not yet 16 when she delivered her first public lecture in defense of socialism. Based on her readings of Mary Wollstonecraft's, Vindication of the Rights of Women, and August Bebel's Women and Socialism, she delivered a speech in 1906 at the Harlem Socialist Club, entitled, What Socialism Will Do for Women? Footnote 41. Although her somewhat male supremacist father had been reluctant to allow Elizabeth to speak in public, the enthusiastic reception in Harlem caused him to change his mind. Accompanying her father, she became familiar with street speaking which was a typical radical tactic of the period. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn experienced her first arrest soon thereafter. Charged with speaking without a permit, she was carted off to jail with her father. Footnote 42. By the time Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was 16, her career as an agitator for the rights of the working class had been launched. Her first task was the defense of Big Bill Haywood, whose frame-up on criminal charges had been instigated by the Copper Trusts. During Westward Travels on behalf of Haywood, she joined the IWW's struggles in Montana and Washington, footnote 43. After two years as a Socialist Party member, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn became a leading IWW organizer. She resigned from the Socialist Party, quote, convinced that it was sterile and sectarian compared with this grassroots movement that was sweeping the country, end quote, footnote 44. With an abundance of strike experiences behind her, including numerous clashes with the police, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn headed for Lawrence, Massachusetts, in 1912 when the textile workers went out on strike. The grievances of the Lawrence workers were simple and compelling. In the words of Mary Heaton Vorse, Quote, Wages in Lawrence were so low that 35% of the people made under $7 a week. Less than a fifth got more than $12 a week. They were divided by nationality. They spoke over 40 languages and dialects, but they were united by a meager living, and the fact that their children died. For every five children under one year of age, one died. Only a few other towns in America had higher death rates. Those were all mill towns. End quote. Footnote 45. Of all the speakers addressing the strike meeting, said Voris, who is covering these events for Harper's Weekly, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was the workers' most powerful inspiration. It was her words which encouraged them to persevere. When Elizabeth Gurley Flynn spoke, the excitement of the crowd became a visible thing. She stood there, young, with her Irish blue eyes, her face magnolia white, and her cloud of black hair, the picture of a youthful revolutionary girl leader. She stirred them, lifted them up in her appeal for solidarity. It was as though a spurt of flame had gone through this audience. Something stirring and powerful, a feeling which had made the liberation of people possible. End quote. Footnote 46. As a traveling strike agitator for the IWW, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn sometimes worked alongside the well known Native American leader Frank Little. In 1916, for example, they both represented the Wobblies during the Mesabi Iron Range strike in Minnesota. It was barely a year later when Elizabeth learned that Frank Little had been lynched in Butt, Montana. He had been attacked by a mob after making agitational speeches to the miners on strike in the area. Quote, Six masked men came to the hotel at night, broke down the door, dragged Frank from his bed, took him to a railroad trestle on the outside of town, and there hanged him. End quote. Footnote 47. A month following Frank Little's death, a federal indictment charged that 168 people had conspired with him to hinder the execution of certain laws of the United States. Footnote 48. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was the only woman among the accused, and Ben Fletcher, a Philadelphia longshoreman and leader of the IWW, was the only black person named in the indictment. Footnote 49. Judging from Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's autobiographical reflections, she was aware from the very beginning of her political career, of the special oppression suffered by black people. Her consciousness of the importance of anti-racist struggles was doubtlessly intensified by her involvement in the IWW. The Wobblies publicly proclaimed that, quote, there's only one labor organization in the United States that admits the colored worker on a footing of absolute equality with the white, the industrial workers of the world, in the IWW, the colored worker, man or woman, is on an equal footing with every other worker. Quote. Footnote 50. But the IWW was a syndicalist organization, concentrating on industrial workers, who, thanks to racist discrimination, were still overwhelmingly white. The tiny minority of black industrial workers included practically no women, who remained absolutely banned from industrial occupations. Indeed, Most black workers, male and female alike, still worked in agriculture or domestic service. As a result, only a fraction of the black population could be reached through an industrial union, unless the union strenuously fought for black people's admission into industry. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn became active in the Communist Party in 1937, footnote 51, and emerged soon afterward as one of the organization's major leaders. Working on an intimate basis with such black communists as Benjamin Davis and Claudia Jones, she developed a new understanding of the central role of black liberations within the overall battle for the emancipation of the working class. In 1948, Flynn published an article in Political Affairs, the party's theoretical journal, on the meaning of International Women's Day, as she argued in this article, quote, The right to work, to training, upgrading, and equal seniority, safeguards for health and safety, adequate childcare facilities. These remain the urgent demands of organized working women, and are needed by all who toil, especially negro women. End quote. Footnote fifty two. Criticizing the inequality between women war veterans and men war veterans, she reminded her readers that black women veterans suffered to an even greater degree than their white sisters. Indeed, Black women were generally caught in a threefold bond of oppression. Quote, Every inequality and disability inflicted on American white women is aggravated a thousandfold among Negro women who are triply exploited as Negroes, as workers, and as women. End quote, footnote 53. This same triple jeopardy analysis incidentally, was later proposed by black women who sought to influence the early stages of the contemporary women's liberation movement. While Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's first autobiography, I Speak to My Own Peace, or The Rebel Girl, provides fascinating glimpses into her experiences as an IWW agitator, her second book, The Alderson Story, or My Life as a Political Prisoner, reveals a new political maturity and a more profound consciousness of racism. During the McCarthy-era assault on the Communist Party, Flynn was arrested in New York, along with three other women, and charged with teaching and advocating the violent overthrow of the government. Footnote 54. The other women were Marion Bacharach, Betty Gannett, and Claudia Jones, a black woman from Trinidad who had immigrated to the United States as a young girl. In June 1951, the four communist women were taken by the police to the New York Women's House of Detention. The one pleasant episode, which lighted up our stay here, involved the birthday party, which Elizabeth, Betty, and Claudia organized for one of the prisoners. Discouraged and lonely, a 19-year-old black woman had happened to mention that the next day would be her birthday. Footnote 55. The three women managed to obtain a cake from the commissary. We made candles of tissue paper for the cake, covered the table as nicely as possible with paper napkins, and sang happy birthday. We made speeches to her, and she cried with surprise and happiness. The next day, we received a note from her as follows. Dear Claudia, Betty, and Elizabeth, I am very glad for what you did for me for my birthday. I really don't know how to thank you. Yesterday was one of the best years of my life. I think even though you are all communist people, that you are the best people I have ever met. The reason I put communists in this letter is because some people don't like communists for the simple reason they think communist people is against the American people, but I don't think so. I think that you are some of the nicest people I ever met in my whole 19 years of living, and I will never forget you all, no matter where I be. I hope you all will get out of this trouble and never have to come back to a place like this. End quote. Footnote 56. After the three women's Smith Act trial, Marion Backrock's health problems led to the severance of her case. They were convicted and sentenced to serve time in the Federal Reformatory for Women in Alderson, Virginia. Shortly before they arrived, the prison had been placed under court order to desegregate its facilities. Another Smith Act victim, Dorothy Rose Blumenberg from Baltimore, had already served a portion of her three-year sentence, as one of the first white prisoners to be housed with black women. We felt both amused and flattered that communists were called upon to help integrate prison houses. Footnote 57 Yet, as Elizabeth Gurley Flynn pointed out, the legal desegregation of the prison's cottages did not have the result of ending racial discrimination. The black women continued to be assigned to the hardest jobs. Quote, On the farm, in the cannery, in maintenance, and at the piggery until it was abolished. End quote. Footnote 58. As a leader of the Communist Party, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn had developed a deep commitment to the black liberation struggle and had come to realize that black people's resistance is not always consciously political. She observed that among the prisoners in Alderson, quote, there was greater solidarity among Negro women, undoubtedly a result of life outside, especially in the South. It seemed to me that they were of better character, by and large, Stronger and more dependable, with less inclination to tattle or be a stool pigeon, than the white inmates. Footnote fifty nine. She made friends more easily among the black women in prison than she did among the white inmates. Frankly, I trusted the Negro women more than I did the whites. They were more controlled, less hysterical, less spoiled, more mature. Footnote sixty, and the black women in turn were more receptive to Elizabeth. Perhaps they sensed in this white woman communist an instinctive kinship in struggle. Claudia Jones Born in Trinidad when it was still the British West Indies, Claudia Jones immigrated to the United States with her parents when she was still quite young. She later became one of the countless black people throughout the country who joined the movement to free the Scottsboro Nine. It was through her work in the Scottsboro Defense Committee that she became acquainted with members of the Communist Party whose organization she enthusiastically joined. Footnote 61 As a young woman in her 20s, Claudia Jones assumed responsibility for the party's Women's Commission and became a leader and symbol of struggle for communist women throughout the country. Among the many articles Claudia Jones published in the journal Political Affairs, one of the most outstanding was the June 1949 piece entitled An End to the Neglect of the Problems of Negro Women. Footnote 62 her vision of black women in this essay was meant to refute the usual male supremacist stereotypes regarding the nature of women's role. Black women's leadership, as Jones pointed out, had always been indispensable to their people's fight for freedom. Seldom mentioned in the orthodox histories, for example, was the fact that the sharecropper strikes of the 1930s were sparked by Negro women. Footnote 69. Moreover, quote, Negro women played a magnificent part in the pre-CIO days in strikes and other struggles, both as workers and as wives of workers, to win recognition of the principle of industrial unionism in such industries as auto, packing, steel, etc. More recently, the militancy of Negro women unionists is shown in the strike of the packing house workers, and even more so in the tobacco workers' strike in which such leaders as Miranda Smith and Velma Hopkins emerged as outstanding trade unionists. End quote. Footnote 64. Claudia Jones chid progressives, and especially trade unionists, for failing to acknowledge black domestic workers' efforts to organize themselves. Because the majority of black women workers were still employed in domestic service, she argued, the paternalistic attitudes towards maids influenced the prevailing social definition of black women as a group. Quote, the continued relegation of Negro women to domestic work has helped to perpetuate and intensify chauvinism directed against all Negro women. End quote. Footnote 65. Jones was not afraid to remind her own white friends and comrades that, quote, Too many progressives, and even some communists, are still guilty of exploiting Negro domestic workers. End quote. Footnote 66. And they are sometimes guilty of, quote, participating in the vilification of maids when speaking to their bourgeois neighbours and their own families. End quote. footnote 67. Claudia Jones was very much a communist, a dedicated communist, who believed that socialism held the only promise of liberation for black women, for black people as a whole, and indeed for the multiracial working class. Thus, her criticism was motivated by the constructive desire to urge her white co-workers and comrades to purge themselves of racist and sexist attitudes. As for the party itself, quote, In our clubs, we must conduct an intense discussion of the role of Negro women so as to equip our party membership with a clear understanding for undertaking the necessary struggles in the shops and communities. End quote. Footnote 68. As many black women had argued before her, Claudia Jones claimed that white women in the progressive movement, and especially white women communists, bore a special responsibility toward black women. Quote, the very economic relationship of negro women to white women, which perpetuates madam-made relationships, feeds chauvinist attitudes and makes it incumbent on white women progressives, and especially communists, to fight consciously, against all manifestations of white chauvinism, open and subtle. End quote. Footnote 69. When Claudia Jones' Smith Act conviction led to her imprisonment in Alderson Federal Reformatory for Women, she discovered a veritable microcosm of the racist society she already knew so well. Although the prison was under court order to desegregate its facilities, Claudia was assigned to a colored cottage, which isolated her from her two white comrades, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Betty Gannett. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn especially suffered from this separation, for she and Claudia Jones were close friends as well as comrades. When Claudia was released from prison in October 1955, ten months after the communist women had arrived at Alderson, Elizabeth was happy for her friend, yet aware of the pain she would suffer in Claudia's absence. Quote, My window faced the roadway, and I was able to see her leave. She turned to wave, tall. Slender, beautiful, dressed in golden brown, and then she was gone. This was the hardest day I spent in prison. I felt so alone. End quote. Footnote 70. On the day Claudia Jones left Alderson, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn wrote a poem entitled Farewell to Claudia. Quote Nearer and nearer drew this day, dear comrade, when I from you must sadly part. Day after day, a dark foreboding sorrow crept through my anxious heart. No more to see you striding down the pathway. No more to see your smiling eyes and radiant face. No more to hear your gay and pealing laughter. No more encircled by your love in this sad place. How I will miss you, words will fail to utter. I am alone, my thoughts unshared, these weary days. I feel bereft and empty, on this grey and dreary morning, facing my lonely future, hemmed in by prison ways. Sometimes I feel you've never been in Alderson, so full of life, so detached from here you seem, so proud of walk, of talk, of work, of being. Your presence here is like a fading, fevered dream. Yet as the sun shines now, through fog and darkness, I feel a sudden joy that you are gone that once again you walk the streets of Harlem, that today, for you at least, is freedom's dawn. I will be strong in our common faith, dear comrade. I will be self-sufficient to our ideals firm and true. I will be strong to keep my mind and soul outside a prison, encouraged and inspired by ever-loving memories of you. End quote. Footnote 71. Soon after Claudia Jones was released from Alderson, the pressures of McCarthyism resulted in her deportation to England. She continued her political work for a while, editing a journal called the West Indian Gazette. But her failing health continued to deteriorate, and she soon fell ill with a disease which claimed her life. And that concludes our reading for this week. This chapter is kind of a little sampler of different stories of women who are engaged in the struggle. It continues to reinforce the idea of needing to understand people's specific oppression to be able to fight adequately for them, and this range of examples shows the difference between whether that's having personally experienced the oppression yourself, or just having the right inclination to listen to other people and learn about their oppression and you are not expected to know everything from the jump especially when it is not an oppression you face but to meaningfully engage and make improvements towards it like leaving a group that you come to realize is unfortunately founded with racist principles at its core and finding or making a new one that can actually adequately address That aspect of the struggle. But that'll do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find it and lots of other leftist podcasts at abnormalmapping.com. Our intro and outro music is decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. And keep greeting.